sends him away to live alone in this isolated ravine. There's ravens that bring him food, and he, uh, he's hanging out there for a while, and he's got this little brook, and, and life is good, but then pretty soon the brook dries up, and Elijah doesn't understand it. He doesn't understand why God has him pulled off on the sidelines and, and why God's provision seems to be going away. And it was there in this particular circumstance that Elijah begins to learn how to surrender his life to God and how to trust God when everything else has fallen away. And it's very interesting in that chapter that describes this. At the very beginning of the chapter, Elijah is described as Elijah the Tishbite. So Doug, you live in Waukee? Doug from Waukee, that's Elijah's thing. But by the end of this chapter... By the end of this chapter, when there's some sifting in Elijah's life and some grinding off of some of the sharp edges, and when, when Elijah is forced to trust in God alone as opposed to all the things that, that he thinks is really his security, by the end of that chapter, Elijah is no longer called Elijah the Tishbite. He's called Elijah the man of God. It's very instructive. It's very interesting. His pattern of obedience begins to shape him into a man of God, <clears throat> into a man that um, is used to fulfill the will of God. And so the story continues, and Elijah finds himself on the top of Mount Carmel. And there are 400 prophets of Baal and 450 prophets of Asherah, or maybe it was the other way around. And he feels completely outnumbered, and there's this kind of showdown. Okay, let's prepare two sacrifices, and whichever one fire falls down from heaven on, that one will just say that God is the true God. And, of course, we know what happens. God sends the fire. The prophets of Baal and the prophets of Asherah are dancing around and cutting themselves in this crazy deal and nothing happens. But God delivers. Elijah risks his life in this particular, particular episode all to make a stand for the God of Israel. All to declare that, that I've given my life to this God and he's going to deliver. And really, the, the, the effect of this was that God desired to bring a wayward people back to himself. And so sometime later, after that, Elijah slips into this deep depression. If you guys remember that part of the story, he's under that broom tree and he's despairing and then he's hiding in a cave and he's like, I'm the only one left. I feel like it's me against the world, which maybe sounds a little bit familiar in the culture that we live in. Occasionally I'll be watching the news and I'm like, wow, it really feels like it's us against the world sometimes because the thinking and the worldview of our culture is not Godward anymore. It's very selfward. And so God speaks to the prophet Elijah during this time. He assures him that he's not alone. He assures him that there are 7,000 who have not bowed their knee to Baal. And he encourages Elijah to keep going. And then he gives him this guy named Elisha so that he can mentor him and so that he can have a partner in ministry. And so after years of walking with God at this point in the story, after years of following after God, Elijah begins to understand two very, mon- two very fundamental things about the character and about the nature of God. And here they are. Number one, Elijah understands that God's desire is to, is to turn the hearts of his people back to himself. And then Elijah also understands that since God is in the business of ministering to people, that the servants of God need to do the same. I would say even or maybe especially when it's inconvenient or when they would rather not do so. And so those are two things that Elijah really learns about the nature and the character and the way that God operates in this world is that God desires to bring the hearts of his people back to himself and God desires his servants, his people to reach out and to minister 
to, the, to those who are their neighbors, their co-workers, uh, things like that. And so on his last day, we find Elijah reaching out to people. He travels to Bethel and to Jericho to check on the young men that he's mentoring, that he's training to serve the Lord. Some of your translations say the school of the prophets, the community of the prophets. ESV says the sons of the prophets. Um, scholars believe that, that these were essentially like Old Testament versions of seminaries or kind of classrooms. Some, some scholars think that the prophet Samuel started it way back when. Some think that Elijah started it. It kind of doesn't matter who started it, but there were these, these kind of schools in place, these communities in place. And Elijah was, was mentoring and training these guys to be the next generation of leaders in the community of God. His desire is to nurture these relationships one last time before he departs into eternity. And I think that's really interesting. I think it's neat that his last day on earth, he could have just kicked back in the, the lazy boy and got some lemonade and a fan and just chilled out. But he didn't, right? One last time to check on these guys to make sure that they're ready because he knows he's going. Of all the things that God could have had Elijah do, I think it's noteworthy that his last assignment was to nurture these relationships that God had, had given him. We see in the story that God displays great power during Elijah's final hours. There's some pretty dramatic things that happen. The Jordan River is parted. We're going to talk about the significance of that in a little bit. The Jordan River parts so that these two guys can cross. There's a chariot of fire that whisks Elijah away into eternity. The only time in the scripture that we hear of this happening. The power of God that God, um, the power that God gave to Elijah is transferred to Elisha. The Jordan River is parted a second time as Elisha steps across to continue God's work. And so when, you, when you're reading stuff like this, maybe there's a temptation in your mind just to kind of keep reading on and think, well, these are isolated little neat stories. They're, they're interesting and, and I'm sure there's some point to it, but, you know, kind of move on to the next chapter, to the next paragraph. But I think it's during times like this that we need to pause, Right? You guys know there's nothing in the scripture that's there by chance. There's nothing in the scripture that's just kind of a random deal. It's there for a reason. It's in the order that it's in for a reason. And far from being isolated, standalone miracles, these events are really God's way of teaching us about his nature and about his character. These events are, are God's way of teaching us about who he is and how he acts in this world. The parting of the Jordan River is really a big deal. Um, that I just noticed that last song that you guys sang talked about parting the sea. Um, I can't remember the exact lyric, but it was uh, a nice synergy here. In the Old Testament, the parting of water is a big deal. It always speaks of the deliverance of God. And what lies behind the deliverance of God is God's goodness, his faithfulness, his, his power. We know that God parted the Red Sea to deliver his people from slavery in Egypt. And we know that the exodus out of Egypt is really um, a, a type that points us forward to the great deliverance, Jesus on the cross delivering us from sin. So this is very, very important. And the people who were reading this way back when, they would see the water parting in the, in the river and they would instantly think of God's deliverance in the Red Sea. Probably the big event in the history of, of God's people 
something that the pagan nations around Israel, they knew that God had done this and they had a, a degree of fear and honor for God because he was the one who parted the sea to let his people through. It also makes us think about the, the first time that God parted the Jordan River when he allowed his people to walk into the land of promise, a land that they had waited so long to get into. So as, as these two guys, this cloak hits the water and the, and, the, and the waters part and these two guys walk over, that's a huge clue, a huge spotlight in the Bible to say, all right, we're talking about the nature of God, his goodness, his faithfulness, and his power. So listen up. So listen up. These events, these events are, are significant, as I, as I mentioned. Uh, when God makes a promise, the promise of God is always good, and that's because God is always good. When God makes a promise, he will always keep it because God is always faithful. When God makes a promise, nothing can prevent its fulfillment because God is always powerful. So be thinking, when you think of God, is that God is good, God is faithful, and God is powerful. And the promise that God is reminding us of is never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. God says, I've taken you, I've separated you to be a people for myself so that you might declare my goodness in this world and draw others to me. I'm going to do everything that I can to make sure that that happens because I am good, I'm faithful, and I'm powerful. That's what's going on here in the last day of Elijah. That's what's going on here in the parting of this river. There's two guys walking through. What's the big deal? God is saying, Elijah, as you get taken up and as my work continues, I want you to know and I want the people who are reading this in years to come to know that I have this. By parting the Jordan River twice in this chapter, God was reminding in a, in a double way, reminding his people that he's never going to change, that he will always remain good and faithful and powerful He'll do this in every generation. He will always dwell with his people. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. The fact that Elijah was taken up to heaven in a chariot of fire is unusual. As I mentioned, it's the only occurrence of this happening in the scripture. But it's also significant. It's also significant rather than just being like when you watch, I see your Captain America shirt. I love all that stuff, right? All the special effects in these movies, you know, all of these interesting things and, and you may be tempted to think every now and then you'll go to a movie and the, the special effects are over the top and it's like, okay, they, they found a new technique and they're kind of showing it off. Well, did God find a new technique and he's just kind of showing off here? Uh, no, no. Um, the significance of this event of Elijah being taken up is, is very simple and it's very direct. It's meant to remind us that that Godward lives are always moving in a certain direction. There's a, <clears throat> there's a trajectory, excuse me. There's a, there's a direction, there's a trajectory that a Godward life goes in. And that ultimate direction, that ultimate destination is eternity with God in heaven. So at Valley Church, I'm going through a book uh, of the Bible with, with my leaders just in the summer. And it's First Peter. And this is one of the central themes of First Peter is that this world isn't our home. We're aliens here. We're temporary residents. Our true home is in heaven. And so everything we do in this earth, on this earth, every event that happens to us, every tragedy, every fiery trial is meant to be viewed within the lens of eternity. And we all know people, we see this mostly at funerals, right? We all know people who are grieving and mourning, let's say at a funeral or a, a tragic event. My son 
my son-in-law and my daughter, their apartment in Ames burned down uh, this, this last Monday. Maybe you saw it on the news. And it was very interesting to view the reaction of different people. This one guy, you know, everyone handles stress and pressure in, in a certain way. This one guy's dad was like yelling and he was freaking out. And, and then you saw other people praying and, and just processing things. But all of the, the good things and all the bad things in our lives, we're meant to view that through the lens of eternity, right? This world isn't our home. This life is a vapor, right? That's what James says in the book of James. Um, eternity is going to be forever, and that's where we're heading up. Um, the best is yet to come, right? And so this little episode here is meant to remind us that, that our ultimate destination, our ultimate end of the road is glory. It's heaven. And so I want to say to you today something that you already know. There are many distractions in, in our life. There's so many distractions, good ones, bad ones, neutral ones. And it's easy for us to forget that this world is not really where we belong. It's really easy to settle in with our, our flat screen TVs and our lazy boys and our comfy chairs and all this kind of thing, which I like to do myself. But it's very easy to settle into all that and sort of forget that this really isn't it. What God is reminding us in this episode with the chariots of fire is that the body of Christ belongs to eternity. We really don't belong here. We belong to eternity. But while we're still living here, we have the privilege of working with God to encourage others to live Godward lives. But in order to do that, we need to strive for that kind of lifestyle. And that's exactly what the, the prophet Elijah did with his life. And that's exactly what's being put on display for us to emulate and for us to model uh, in our lives. So as you look into the life and ministry of this man of God, especially the account of his last day, the thing that you need to know is this, and it's in your, your worship folder there, your bulletin. This is the thing that you need to know. Just like Elijah and so many others, you'll see it up on the screen here, you can live a Godward life. As I was reviewing, I spoke this message at Valley a little while ago, and uh, I was reviewing this uh, deal here, and I'm looking at my points, and I'm like, man, these just seem like, duh. It's almost it's kind of embarrassing to have that up on the screen because it seems so elementary and so basic, and it's like, well, of, of course, of course I can do this. Romans 6, we're no longer slaves to sin, but slave, slaves to righteousness. There's so many places in the Bible where it says we can do this, but I think we forget, right? I mean, I'm a pastor and I forget. I read this book called The Disciplines of Grace. If you want to write this down, The Disciplines of Grace by Jerry Bridges. And one of the themes of this book, it says, you need to preach the gospel to yourselves daily. A lot of times we think, well, I'm saved. I, I kind of don't need the gospel anymore. It's not true. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. And this is part of that. We can live a Godward life. The Bible testifies to this. The Spirit of God testifies to this in our lives. And the lives of Elijah and so many other saints are a testimony to this as well. And so what I need to hear, and I think what you need to hear as well, is that this is possible. That this is doable. A lot of times we think, well, you know, Moses, Elijah, David, Paul, Jesus, Peter, C.S. Lewis, Billy Graham, Dave Brooks. These guys have this down, but I don't know. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not one of those guys. I'm not one of, you know, Miriam, Mary, um, Deborah, all these people in the Bible. These ladies have it down. I, I'm not that caliber. It's not a big deal. 
I think we need to resist that thinking. We can live Godward lives. We can submit the entirety of our lives to him. Now, we'll stumble at times. Thankfully, that the, the Lord's mercy is new every morning. But it is possible for you to have God occupy the first place in your affections. This is possible. It's doable. And I know I'm not alone in this. There's times where we resign to the fact that I just don't, I just don't think it's really possible. I'll do the best I can, but I don't think I'm going to strive much further than this line because I don't really think it's doable. False. It's a lie, right? It's true. You can, with great joy, effectively nurture the kingdom relationships that God has given you. Mentoring people in the church, reaching out to people who live in your neighborhood, who work with you, etc. You can continue to walk towards eternity with a confidence and a boldness and a sense of security, knowing that the God who parts oceans and rivers and whisks people away in chariots of fire, this God is still directing his goodness and his faithfulness and his power into your lives. Sometimes I think we have a disconnect in our minds that the God who did all of these things in the Bible, that's still the same God, and he can still do things like that in your life. So what do we need to know? We, you and I, can live a Godward life. Why do we need to know this? So what's at stake here? So when you approach the scripture, it's, it's good to read the Bible, and it's good to understand what God is saying, and it's good to gain some knowledge of that. But what we need to ask is just a few questions as we approach the word of God. And we'll talk about this a little bit later too. We need to know, what do we need to know? What's God telling us? The second thing we need to know is why do we need to know this? Why is this important? Why did God take the time to write 2 Kings chapter 2 verses 1 to 15? Well, when these truths that I just mentioned to you seem distant to us, when they seem hard to believe, when they seem a little bit foggy, Um, We need to remember that the Lord is God, right? That's what the people of Israel said after God sent fire on the the drenched sacrifice uh, on the top of Mount Carmel. They said the Lord is God. We need to remember that. We need to remember that God is the creator of all that is seen and unseen. We need to remember that God is the one who breathes life into dead things and makes them new. He did that for you. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. The God of this age has blinded the hearts and minds of those who do not believe so that they cannot see the glory of God in the face of Christ. And then uh, a couple verses later in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, it says that God shines his light into our hearts so that we can see this glory. God still does that. We need to remember that this is the God who says that you belong to him and that you have been created to live a Godward life so in order to do that, I think we need to reject a few things, right? You guys have heard this before. There are three things that conspire against our walk with Christ, the world. When the Bible talks about the world, it's not talking about the dirt, the, the, the mountains, the rivers, the trees. When the Bible talks about the world, as you know, it's talking about the, the worldview, the system of thought, the, the way of thinking in this world that is really the deceiver's thinking, it goes against the mind of Christ. It's just the way sinful humanity thinks. And we see that all the time. All you need to do is turn on the news or open, an, open up a, a magazine or go to a, a website and you'll understand what the world thinks. The second is the flesh. We have sinful natures. We're sinful people. And we desire in our flesh things that are against Christ. And the third thing is, is the devil. We have, we have an adversary in addition to 
living in this culture and the ideas of this culture kind of seeping into our lives, in addition to the fact that we're prone to choose sin, we also have an adversary who is, who is trying to entice us away from God. And so with all of those things working against us, we need to reject some ideas. Number one, we need to reject the idea that we are slaves to the idiosyncrasies and to the passions that war against our souls. We're not. We're slaves to Christ. We need to reject the idea that we can live our lives with little to no accountability. Very, very dangerous as a believer to walk through life on your own. And so I, I always make plugs for life groups at Valley Church. What do you guys, growth groups? What do you call them here? Life groups. Perfect. I can make a life group plug here. If you're not in a group, get into one. If you're in a group and maybe it's not the best fit, find one that is a good fit. If you're not in accountability, guys with other guys and women with other women, you need to be. It's very, very dangerous to walk this path alone. We also need to reject the idea that we are really unable to experience the new, the, the new life that Christ has promised for us because it's not true, right? So there's things that we need to reject, but then there's also things that we need to gravitate toward. And your second fill-in is, um, is this. Why do we need to know what's, what God is telling us in this, in this passage? The second fill-in is this. God says that you belong to him and that you're being moved toward eternity. God says that you belong to him and that you're being moved toward eternity. And again, this seems really elemental and really, really basic. And maybe, you know, you're, well, I, I've heard all this stuff before. Why did I come here today? Man, we need to remember this every day. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. This world is not our home. We're passing through. We, we belong to God. And the ultimate destination of our lives is eternity. And so if that's the case, maybe that's going to influence the way that we make some decisions here on earth. Maybe that's going to influence the way that we pursue relationships with people in the church and outside the church. I think it's crucial that we listen to God and God alone in this, in this manner because the world, the flesh, and the devil is going to direct us to the self-word life, but God is going to direct us to the God-word life. When I think about this, I think about uh, the wisdom of God on the one hand and human wisdom on the other hand. Human wisdom is always going to direct a person to pursue a self-word life. And you, you've heard all of these sayings in our culture, follow your heart, be true to yourself, if it makes you happy, do it. Um, I'm a Star Wars fan. I'm a huge nerd. I love the Lord of the Rings and Star Wars and all this stuff. I love it, love it, love it. Love it. I, I'm the biggest nerd on staff at Valley Church. And I like being a nerd. Star Wars, be true, you know, search your feelings, right? Luke, search your feelings. That's a terrible, ter Star Wars is fun, but that's terrible advice. Don't search your feelings. They will inevitably take you down the wrong path. Search out what God thinks. Have you ever thought about this? The devil, the deceiver, he's called in the Bible. He, he, this is something that many others have said, but C.S. Lewis, I remember C.S. Lewis saying this in the Screwtape Letters. If you haven't read or listened to Screwtape Letters, it's really, really a must read. C.S. Lewis says, the deceiver doesn't, doesn't so much encourage people to worship him as much as he encourages people to worship themselves, right? And you know what I mean by that, worship of self. It was interesting. I was looking over my notes here before we left and the, the news, we had the news on and there's this guy and I won't say who it was and there's a lot of baggage associated with all that that I don't want to get into. But I heard again, just 
the chorus of voices in our, in our society saying the same thing, said something to the effect of, um, it's okay to believe in a higher power, but really you need, to be, you need to believe in yourself first. You need to be true to yourself first. And language that was along the lines of, um, don't, don't, you know, God is a crutch. Don't use God as a crutch. You need to just rely on yourself. Believe in yourself. Follow your heart. Wherever it is that your heart is going, you need to pursue that. It's devastatingly awful advice, folks. The, the heart is, is wicked and deceitful beyond cure. It's just such terrible advice. It sounds so right, especially to sinful selfward people. It just sounds right, and it feels right to people who don't, who don't know Christ, but it's awful. And the thing of it is, is that as God's people, we're so tempted just to search our feelings. And, and um, you know, when the world says using God as a crutch, God says, well, I would term that as having faith in me and trusting in me. But it gets mixed up and the wires get crossed a little bit. The selfward life, the life that walks away from God, it's a terrible way to live. It, it promises a lot and it delivers little. It, it tastes good at first, but it's just devastating. God says that we belong to him and we're, we're being moved toward eternity. That's kind of the, the lens that we're supposed to look at and look through as we live this life on earth. So what do we need to know? We need to know that we can live Godward lives. Why do we need to know it? We need to know it because God says that we belong to him and that he's actually moving us through this life into eternity. And so the last thing is, what do we need to do? That's your last fill-in. What do we need to do? So this is great that we're talking about this, but if we leave here and just drop it, then I think it's an incomplete deal. Don't just be hearers of the word, right? But be doers. That's what James tells us in the scripture. What do we need to do? It's on the screen here. We need to pursue a Godward direction in life and not a selfward direction. And so you're thinking, well, is that all? Okay, that's easy. It's, it's not. It's not easy. It's, it's difficult. I mean, it's the narrow way. It's dying to self and living for Christ and for others. It's, it's hard, right? How does one go about doing such a thing? It's very easy to put that on the, the worship folder, and it's very easy to fill in those blanks. Pursue a Godward direction in life and not a selfward direction. Well, what does that mean? How do we do that? The first thing that we have to say is we, we certainly can't do that in our own strength. It's impossible. I've tried it. You've tried it. We can do it rather imperfectly for a little bit of time, but at some point in time, we just don't have the resources and the steam in the, in the engine, the gas in the tank to, to make it go for a long time, and it, it dies out. The first thing that we need to remember is that this life can't be lived in our own strength. It has to be lived in submission to God and in reliance on his power. And we know this, but sometimes we forget it. But also there's a curious thing in the Bible. The apostle Paul calls the, the Bible, the gospel, a mystery, right? He does it a lot in the epistles, the mystery of the gospel. And this is one of the mysteries of the gospel is that the fuel for this life comes from God. The power from this life comes from his spirit dwelling within us and from the grace that we find in the community of the church. But yet there's something that we need to do, right? The apostle Paul says many times, take off the old self and put on the new. So this life is all about God from conversion through the time that he takes us into eternity and beyond. It's all about God. It's impossible to do without God. But yet there is a part that we have to play, this part where we cooperate with God's grace, right? Um, 
Theologians call this grace-enabled effort. There is an effort. There is a thing that we need to do in cooperating with the grace of God, even though that that's not the main power source, but, but it's part of it. And where does the one begin and the other end? I'm not quite sure. I mean, I'm walking this path with you guys. But I do know that I can't live this life on my own. And simultaneously, I know that there are some things that I need to do in order to cooperate with God's grace Uh, dying to self and living for God. And what I want to do is walk you through uh, something that I picked up a few years ago, several years ago, by a a pastor named John Piper. And uh, it's called Nine Ways to Pray for Your Soul. And I had sent that with the stuff. I don't know if there's a, do you guys have a thing? Yeah, good, you have a thing. So um, this is, I have a toolbox, like a figurative toolbox of a lot of different things that, kind of prayer and devotional aids. And this is in my toolbox. And actually, my accountability partner is a fellow pastor at Valley Church. And we've been going through this lately. Nine ways to pray for your soul. So this isn't, if you just do this, everything's done. This is just one tool, right? I just redid my deck. I brought all my tools out. I didn't just use one. I used a lot of them. And this is just one tool that I use in in helping my feet get on the path of, of a Godward life. I think it starts with prayer. Um, I had a, a professor in seminary who encouraged me years and years ago to pray through the scriptures. And it was one of the neatest things that I ever did in my devotional life. So I encourage you to pray through the scriptures. But before you get to the Bible, uh, Piper recommends that you pray through some things so that God can do what he needs to do so that we do what we need to do in this relationship. And I wanted to walk you through them a little bit, and uh, just give you a little bit of background information on this, and I think um, this will be a beneficial thing for you guys to add to your devotional toolbox. So here are some ways to pray for yourself so that you're praying in sync with the way that God desires to work in your life, so that you can live a Godward life. And if you do things like this, you're going to be amazed at, like, you know when you spray Roundup on, a, on a, like the weeds and all that, and you see it wither? I mean, you'll see that self-word deal just begin to wither in your life and others will see it as well. And so I commend it. But the first one, the first one, for the desire of my heart to be toward God and his word, that's the first thing that God is asking us to pray, for the desire of my heart to be toward God and his word. And uh, none of this stuff is really worthwhile if it's not directly rooted in scripture. I really don't care about my thoughts about God. I really care more about God's thoughts about God and me in reality. And so the scripture here is Psalm 119.36. It says, teach us, uh, it teaches us to pray, Lord, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. And so the first thing that we need when we approach God and approach his word is we need an inclination toward God and his word. Um, We want to know God. We want to meditate on his word. We want to draw near to him. We acknowledge to God that these desires can only come from him. If you're thinking that you can manufacture this, you're, you're wrong. If I'm thinking that I can manufacture this inclination, this desire to be drawn toward God and his word, I can't. I mean, I've proven that over and over in my life, and I think you guys have as well. So when we go to God, we're really saying very simply, I ask you, Lord, take my heart, which is more inclined to my desires and change those desires, change those inclinations. We're asking that God create godly desires that are not there. And really this is the, the, this first step I think is the most important. We're asking God to create 
godly desires that just simply aren't there. I'm not going to go through all all of these nine in this much detail, but there's a couple that I really, really want to camp out on. And this one is super important. God, create in me desires that don't exist in me so that I can live with you in the way that you want me to. Because if it's just about me, it's not going to happen. The second is, is that for the eyes of my heart to be opened. Psalm 119.18 says, Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. Open my eyes that I might behold wonderful things from your law. When we have an inclination to go to God in his word, the next thing we need is, is to have the eyes of our heart opened so that we can see what's really there and not just our own thoughts and our own ideas. A lot of times, you know, I'll, I'll read the scripture and, and I don't see anything wonderful. I don't see anything glorious there. Um, reading doesn't produce joy. What we're asking is that, that God would let us taste and see that he's good. So we need an inclination to God and his word, but we also need to ask him to open the eyes of our heart. And then the third thing is, is that um, we, we ask God that once we have an inclination to his word and once he is opening the eyes of our heart, that, that he would enlighten our heart with these wonders, with these glories about himself. And Ephesians 1.18 says, Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. And this is a really kind of cool deal because a little bit earlier I quoted uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. When God converts somebody, when God causes someone to be born again, he shines his light into, he did that for me on January 24th, 1990. He did that for, for you if you're in Christ on a certain date. Uh, he shined his light into our hearts so that all of that other stuff would burn away and we would see Jesus for who he is, right? We're asking him to do that same thing. Not that we need to be born again, again, but that he would use that same power to, to shine light in our hearts so that we would know who he really is and we would love him for who he really is. And then we ask God for our hearts to be united, not divided. There's maybe some tech people. Are, are there any tech people in the crowd here? Raise your hand. Yep, we got a couple. We got a couple. Just one. All right, good for you. So is this still a thing like, like hard drives? Do they still get fragmented? Like there's a part of the file here, part of the file here. And after a certain point, or is that not so much a deal? It still, it still is? All right. Right. So after a while, if your hard drive gets fragmented enough, it'll probably decrease performance. Yeah, right. And so that's the same thing in our hearts, right? Our hearts get fragmented. Part of our heart wants God, and part of our heart doesn't. And so we're asking, we're asking God to unite our hearts Psalm 8611, Lord, I will walk in your truth, unite my heart to fear your name. Lord, my heart is fragmented, so when I go to your word, when I ask you to show me who you really are, unite my heart. It's a lifelong process. It's not going to be all done right now. It'll never be done until we're in eternity. But pray that. Ask God to unite your heart so that you would honor him, fear his name. Number five, we need to ask God for our hearts to be satisfied with him and not with the world. And this is the last thing that I'm really going to camp out on. We will not sin. We will not live a lifestyle of sin. We're, we're going to mess up and we're going to sin if we're happy in Christ, right? Sin essentially is this. We're looking for something that will make us happy and make us satisfied. And God is saying, I want that to be me. I want to be your ultimate satisfaction, your ultimate happiness, your ultimate joy. But the promise of sin lures us into finding what only can be found in God in something else. 
And what we're asking God, Psalm 90 verse 14, is to satisfy us in the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening. Satisfy us with your steadfast love that may we, we may rejoice and we may be glad all of our days. I think this is utterly important. And I think this is the reason why, you know, so many people come into my office and into Dave's office and into other pastors and counselors' offices is because they've looked for that which they should have been looking for in Christ in something that is destructive. The rest of them, I'm going to let you look at on your own. They're super important, but I, I, I need to watch my time here. They're all important, but in the morning or whenever it is that you go to the Word, whenever it is that you spend time with God, um, from time to time, pull this out. And, and Piper calls them his pre-Bible, pre-prayer warm-ups. Is ask God to do this work in your heart. You're setting aside that time to spend time with God, but these affections and these putting God first, this can only really be ignited. This fire can only be ignited by God. So use this. If you have other things like this, share it with one another. But I found these things to be super healthy. I want to wrap up here by saying this. This is the foundation of a, of a Godward life, right? Asking God to ignite this fire. Asking God to make clear to you the path that he wants you to walk. And then it's our responsibility to cooperate with this, with this grace. This is the way that God will occupy first place in our affections, this is the motivation for effectively nurturing those kingdom relationships that God has given you. And by the way, fill your cup, but give it away. Younger, these older guys in the church, you need to be, you need to be mentoring and, and sharing this and giving this away to the younger guys. Ladies, the older ladies in the church, you need to be giving this away to the younger ladies and younger gals in this church. It, it's just how it is. This is exactly what we see Elijah doing on his last day. The fuel to walk toward eternity with confidence and boldness and a sense of security is this. This is the same God who, who parted oceans and rivers. This is the same God who is desiring to do these sorts of things in your life. This is a God who is good. This is a God who is faithful. And this is a God who is powerful. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. As was um, sung earlier, this is the day that you've made and we want to rejoice and we want to be glad in it. We're thankful for your word. We're thankful for the many ways that you show us your grace. And we're thankful for the body of Christ, this church. What you're doing here in and through it is a wonder. And I pray that you would see fit to continue to use us to, to do your will. We ask this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.